Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Handing in his badge and gun after a 34-year law enforcement career. We talk to Chief of the City of Groton Police, Michael Spellman, as he prepares to retire from the force. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Some jobs are just that, a means to an end and a paycheck every month, but some become careers. Michael Spellman is the current chief of police for the city of Groton Police Department, and after 34 years as one of the state's top cops, he's decided it's time to retire and hand over the reins of the police department. I caught up with Chief Spellman recently to have a chat about his career and the various jobs and positions he's had over the years and the challenges of modern-day policing and what he might possibly do next. Chief, ever so many thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you for having me. So, it's coming to an end, a retirement. Why did you decide to do that? It's my time. I mean, I've been doing this for 34 years. It's an easy time of transition for the City of Groton Police Department. I've given them three major IT deliverables going on the state radio system. Through a, uh, a JAG grant, we were able to get body camera technology. We simultaneously did de-escalation training where we have a certified instructor within the building working on it with our personnel. And then lastly, the uh, Citizens at Risk database, which is a hybrid of the uh, CAS system uh, that won the uh, Connecticut Council of Municipalities Award in Stonington. We were able to bring that by a memorandum of understanding over into the city. So all three of those uh, deliverables are on the table. I'll be 58 in May, and I am at a point in my life where I'm tour enough that if I seek another opportunity, I bring something to the table and young enough to do so. So it uh, it was it was my time to uh, to leave the profession, and I have no regrets leaving. I you know, I, uh, I did the best I could in, in every position I had. And, uh, you know, the city of Groton is in a, in a good position. And I have eternal respect for the men and women that served here in this department uh, during my tenure for their collective efforts. And will always have a soft spot in my heart for the uh, people of the city of Groton. And, um, they uh, were very supportive, not only the department, but of me personally. It was a, uh, a great high to leave a uh, long career around. And I've got a, uh, a wife at home and uh, two adult children that, uh, you know, I'd, I look forward to spending more time with. Law enforcement is in your blood. You started your career in the Connecticut State Police. That lasted for 25 years, which is huge. How has it changed over the years? I mean, I'm not just talking the Connecticut State Police, but policing in general, because you must have seen some huge changes in the way that the police are either perceived or how you even police as well. I was in the 96th training troop of the Connecticut State Police, and we were the first training troop to come out after the uh, Tracy Thurman situation in Torrington. All of the protocols and really the law itself had changed, the Domestic Violence Act. And uh, we were trained in that, and that changed policing to a degree in and of itself. And it was a good benchmark for a young officer to come on to see how quickly things can change just from a a single court ruling or a mistake made in another agency elsewhere. One thing I've seen in a a change in law enforcement is I don't think frontline personnel get treated as well. And, you know, in a 
blows back to us at you know at the the higher levels uh, that they did in previous generations. Uh, you know, the public is you know there are elements of the public is you know, very aggressive uh, in in the way that they they treat officers, and it's it's difficult for them, and things have been thrown at them. Uh, particularly in the in the last eighteen months, that are really unprecedented. It's a tremendous transitionary time. What would you say are some of the challenges you know now for obviously police forces? I'm guessing that social media and the media are two of them. Social media, you will have people that will comment on. One thing I've noticed that's different is we almost have to get information out immediately in social media on an individual incident because the amount of misinformation that comes out is significant and you can end up tying up your dispatch where you know there's almost like a panic effect that can happen in a, a incident that occurs in a community secondarily uh the press and we've been very blessed locally for the most part but you know the, the press is not always a, a friend of law enforcement uh, it can be very very difficult now if i said to you i'm going to create a tabletop exercise for command and for uh, patrol officers where you're going to literally shut down the two, the, the two largest uh, casinos in all service of alcohol. And those are the two largest casinos in this hemisphere the night before St. Patrick's Day because of a uh, virus that is, you know, resonated in China, has moved, and, and New York is, is reporting significant problems and, and deaths. You know, you would have got laughed at uh, for putting up. And this generation of police officers just live that. Uh, they had to get PPE. They had to change a lot of the way that they interact with people to just keep exposure away from each other. It, you know, there's been significant challenges. Very briefly, in the uh, uh, peak of the uh, the pandemic for rates in uh, uh, Connecticut, we went on a 12-hour shifts uh, with our personnel here, four on and four off, and uh, and allowed them to get tested on their days off so that we knew we weren't cross-contaminating each other or worse, becoming a super spreader for the community that we serve. So we've been very blessed here that officers that have acquired the uh, the virus did not get it on duty. Uh, we've had you know the appropriate protective gear here, and and the, and the guys have done a great job with it. But it, it's that's definitely afforded unique challenges. I was going to say that must be one of the biggest challenges that you've probably seen over a, you know your your long career because it's just touched everything. It has. I mean, it, and then you, you ask the question, is the world going to go back to the way it was? And, and I don't know if it will. Now, that's something that you're looking at. Now, in the middle of that pandemic, you know, we had a scenario in Minneapolis with the Floyd case that's about to go to trial, officers facing charges for homicide that resonated nationally and, and really touched off a firestorm. We had 1,200 protesters at the, the front door here. You know, and that is changed a lot of what we're dealing with. I'm very proud of what we did in Grant City. We created a, a police and citizens together group. PAC group is probably the most diverse group of people that, that have come together at a table at one time locally. What I was particularly proud of is we had people that disagreed, but it didn't turn into a shouting match. It didn't turn into uh, any argument. People were listening to understand each other, which is a good thing. And you don't ever want to lose that in a community. But that's an unusual challenge for law enforcement as well. Brought in a facilitator uh, to work the, the meeting. You know, and, and I listen myself uh, as to what we bring back to uh, to our personnel. But the, uh, the PAC committee has been very effective. In fact, we ran a uh, event during the pandemic, where we gave out backpacks uh, down at Brantford Manor because uh, we had gotten back from the school that some of our local youth didn't have backpacks, didn't have uh, all the gear that they needed, you know, pencils, things along those lines, and school paper to take notes. And we were able to address that, get that out in, in the middle of the, the pandemic. Now, setting that event up so everybody's six feet apart and 
and people moving forward had a lot of unique challenges uh, to us. And we set it up at St. John's Church, which is a, a traditionally African-American church right next to Branford Manor. We have a great relationship with a pastor. Coleman is our department chaplain. You know, I thought that was a, a highlight of you know what we were looking to achieve and met a definite need for people at risk in our, our community. And it was a uh, uh, it was a really good event, and that was out of community conversation. And uh, ironically, you probably had the gentleman farthest on the right in the group working with a, a woman who was probably the furthest on the left in the group, and they worked together to make this event happen. And you know, you you hold out hope that with everything that's wrong in this country right now, that if we can do that in Little Old Groton City, you hope that it can be done nationally. Let's take a little look back at your career a bit more. So after you left the Connecticut State Police, you had a brief flirtation with the corporate world as a consultant. What was that like? The money was great, but uh, the travel wasn't. And, and you're at the whim of some corporate needs, and you can be all over the place. And bluntly, I miss law enforcement. I came back as a patrolman. I had been uh, uh, the guy in the corner office. I'd run a state police barracks. You know, I'd had uh, Troop K, Troop D, commanded the casino unit, and I uh, commanded a Bureau of Criminal Investigations Unit, statewide narcotics. So, you know, I had a lot of experience, you know, at that level, but it was a lot of fun to come back on patrol to work. And it's been a great benefit to me as chief to have done that because I'm probably one of the few chiefs in the region that knows what these guys are going through. I've been out in the field. I've been out in, on patrol. You know, I've seen what, you know, we're confronting today, you know, and it, and it allows you to temper your decision making so you meet their needs so that they can better serve the public. And then apart from coming back, obviously, as you say, as a police officer and then ultimately moved on to uh, the job that you hold now, I mean, you also had a brief flirtation as a selectman as well. So politics is in your blood. So what got you so, like fired up for that? In my family, my uh, father was the longest serving first selectman in the history of the town of Stonington. He did 12 terms, 24 years. He literally took Stonington from when they didn't even have I-95 to uh, Old Mystic Village and the Mystic Aquarium, you know, going into place. And at the same time, protecting the uh, uh, scenic beauty and, and ecology of the region with uh, three separate sewer treatment plants on the three bodies of water in the town, you know, which was, was really unprecedented. And, and, you know, and he's my dad and I love him, but, you know, somewhat visionary as well. Politics is, yes, it's in the blood. And I had a, uh, a grandfather that was president of the Wesley Town Council in Rhode Island. He had uh, come back from World War I and, and served in that capacity. Also on my mother's side of the family, uh, there were a lot of cops. So uh, I guess you could call me a mama's boy. I ended up uh, going that route. But I did serve as a selectman. I uh, ran and uh, won onto the board of selectmen. I uh, served with Rob Simmons, George Krause, Kate Rotella. Did a lot of good things for the uh, the town. We came in after a period of a little bit of scandal from the, the previous administration. And uh, you know, I think we restored the public trust. And one thing I wanted to make sure we did is that we had civil conversation so that it, you know, it didn't dissolve into name-calling or finger-pointing. You know, we, we tried to, to work together to work for the common good. I use the term move the needle and move the needle. And uh, we did some good things. Passed the bond that brought in the two elementary schools. We're in there. We you know, protected things that we were, we were working on in the, in the town, and it, and it went well. It was, uh, you know, it was a very, very good experience. As we said, you've had a very long and illustrious career, 34 years, and uh, obviously many memories, many outstanding things, I'm sure, that uh, you know you can remember. There's one particular story which you mentioned to another media outlet recently when you were talking, obviously, about your retirement that you said sort of um, stuck with you, and it's to do with a woman who'd inadvertently driven her car into the Thames River. Tell us about that. Why, why was that one in particular that stood out to you? Media, ironically, uh, in the sense that it's on tape what happened, and you watch it. Ironically, the next day, I could not figure out why my back hurt so bad the next day. And I'm on tape 
with a rope tied to the car, like trying to pull the car in the water back to shore. No wonder my back hurt. We went in the water and got her out, and we came dramatically close to that having a different outcome. Eric Jenkins, who's the captain here, deserves tremendous credit getting in there and uh, doing everything that you're trained to do in a water rescue and uh, getting an elderly woman out of really frigid water. And, you know, we got her to shore. We got her warmed up. You know, we had got wet uh, getting her out, and uh, and it went it went remarkably well getting her out. We were able to save somebody's life. And then to watch that on tape, you're like, wow, what had happened transpired right in front of you and, you know, that you were, were part of that. And then it went, it kind of went viral. It ended up uh, being on all the media outlets. I got to give great credit to uh, Officer Scott LeSage, who's our accreditation officer, similarly, who was out there uh, during that time period. And it was a really great team effort. Uh, the fire department showed up concurrently with us and we were able to you know, get ropes on the car, stabilize the car, get the woman out of the car, and basically uh, keep it from becoming a tragedy. And those things happen, and they happen fast. And uh, and then you got to figure out what you're going to do real quickly to keep that from happening. And we also had a citizen that went into the water as well. When water's that cold, you almost start a timing mechanism, like you're only good in the water for so long, and then you got to get somebody out. And you almost create like a human chain. Uh, to get them out. And then you've got to resist your reflexes that, oh my God, that person's at risk. I got to get them out. You know, once that happens, it's chaos and and it's not going to be a successful outcome. But we were able to discipline ourselves and and get that done. It, you know, and and like I said, the media end of it that, you know, you're watching it on there and thank God they didn't have the, uh, the audio version of it. Cause I think we, uh, that would have been rated X with us yelling at each other to get the uh, the woman out. That was uh, great police work and great teamwork. But you know, the other thing, you know, that, you have to keep in mind is those are are the huge things that happen that work. The little things are just as important. You know, when you get out to uh, like Buford's restaurant, sit down and which is kind of like the front office of Groton City, and just listen to, to you know a citizen that has a problem. They came to you with their problem. That's a great honor. So you've got to do everything you can to to help them, and, and you keep the little problems from becoming the big problems. And that gets the you know when they traditionally look at police departments they're in fire departments usually they're the highest ranked positions within a community for public trust even with everything that's going on and that's a lot of the reason and if we ever get away from that you know some people call that community policing i call that effective policing and you go out and, and you go listen and I've, I've long said anybody who knows me i don't ever want to be the photo of the guy on the wall you know, I, I, you know, I want to be a guy who's on the community where people know who you are. That's important. I was going to say, I mean, you appear as if you are a very hands-on and what you've been talking about, you know, getting out there in, in the community, a very hands-on police chief. Would that be fair? Yes. I mean, we've, we've done significant community outreach here. I mean, um, you know, partnering with St. John's uh, Christian Church, we've run toy coat and food drives uh, concurrently. You know, we've reached out to a branch of the military every year to to come in and work with us. You know, the, the Green Knights local motorcycle group, we're all Navy veterans, did a tremendous job with donations for us this year. You know, those are the things we can make a difference. Uh, we were able to meet one year through St. John's Church. Every kid who was looking for a coat locally, they got a coat out of that coat drive. You know, that, those are important things, and they're good things. You, know, you don't ever want a kid going cold. And uh, I really, you know, look at, you know, you have heroin, you have homelessness, and you have hunger. And, you know, the three H's. And when you, you see those, if you can have a positive impact on all three of those in your community, your crime rate's going to go down, your quality of life's going to go up. And if you're not on the front line working with that, then you should be. When you took over as chief of police, what's it like being in charge of these men and women, the very difficult job that they do? What's it like being the chief? Well, you, you have to be uh, supportive of their efforts. And you also have to realize that although you try to keep a uniform approach to, to what you're dealing with everybody, you're dealing with 30 different individuals. And 30 people deal with things differently. 
and you got to reach, try to reach inside them to find something that's in them that you can turn on. You know, should they have an interest in uh, accident reconstruction, uh, get them in there. One of the things here that we have a uh, uh, older officer that had a full career in the United States Navy, retired. You know, he's had a uh, incredible career in the nuclear Navy, and he became a police officer. And while he's in here, he's had some personal uh, tragedy in his life. Uh, his wife uh, passed away from cancer. He uh, lost a, uh, a son to addiction, and he does have a, a child on the spectrum. And he took the time to get himself, uh, you know, we in- encouraged it completely, to get himself ALEC certified so that we have the only ALEC certified trainer in the region because you have to have a child on the spectrum to become a uh, ALEC certified instructor. He's going to train the Connecticut State Police Academy uh, class that's in session right now with the ALEC protocols that we have here. It works because it's uh, one of the growing demographics with very unique service needs is the autism community. And it's not a program where you, you give out a package or, or something along those lines. It's how you interact with that group for communication. Something as simple as we started an autism patch. And we've had enough people look, you know, come up and look at it or people on the spectrum. That's me. And they look at it. And you're, you're, yep, we're here to work with you. And uh, I saw uh, Captain Jenkins. We had a, an adult on the spectrum who was at about a 10 uh, having a, uh, a real hard day. Came into our, our lobby and Eric with a juice box and a teddy bear and getting down and talking to him and calming him. Took him from a 10 to a 2 in about four or five minutes. And, you know, that ability to be empathetic and realize that they're not going to react to things and cues the way you and I do. They react differently. And you meet the unique service needs of that community. And and one thing that's been an emphasis from, from me all the way down to the new guy on the road is that it's not if you're going to deal with somebody on the spectrum, it's when. You know, the incidents of, of births are like, you know, one in 50 at this point. You know, and that may be with, with increased diagnoses, et cetera. But, you know, you're going to deal with people on the spectrum. You're going to have classic autism to people who have Asperger's. You know, you're going to have to be able to, to interact with them to meet their service needs. You know, and that's a, a point that we've had here. And I'm very proud of what we've done with that here. I think uh, we've done a good job. And I, I think it's something that you can build on locally. What do you think will be one of the biggest things that you'll miss once you actually retire? You miss the people. You know, it, when you get into the uh, the command level, you're not one of the guys anymore, which is, you know, one of the things that, that you, you do run into. But you do miss the people. You know, they, there's some people that say there's people that are adrenaline junkies and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, that being said, you know, when you come in, every day is a new challenge that you come in, especially in these times. I mean, I used to come in with five things I wanted to get done every day, and I cut that down to two because it's just, it you know, with with everything that's going on with the uh, the COVID epidemic and and all this, the needs of the, the community that we have to meet, it's just you can't do it anymore. You go out and you, 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 get, you get what you can, what you can get done during a day. And, uh, but you miss, you're going to miss the people. You know, I've served in five separate decades, and you know, they, I, I've met some incredibly talented and caring people. And, uh, and, and you miss them. And they're, like I said in the article, they're my heroes. You've said that you're not sure yet what it is that you're going to move on to do once you actually retire. And as you said, you're only 58 years young, plenty of years left in you to do whatever it is that you want. Are we going to lose you or are you going to hang around? Obviously, the area will be a poorer place without Michael Spellman. Well, I, that's very flattering, and I, I appreciate that. Nobody's irreplaceable. And you know, one of the things that you do in, in the, the position that you're in is... You develop the people uh, that work underneath you to replace you. You know whether you're a sergeant. You know when you work with the the frontline people you have, you you develop people to replace you there. You know as a uh, lieutenant, you develop the sergeants, the, the people within the command. Uh, here, the lieutenant and the captain, I work with them very closely and make sure that they're ready to go. 
when I was on the Board of Selectmen in Stonington, uh, Rob Simmons had been a United States congressman and was acting as the first selectman. Rob made sure I knew everything going on. You know, in, in a sense, he was a old school colonel from the U.S. Army and he was looking to develop me. When you do that, you know, things will, things will move on and, and there's a little bit of a transitionary phase. And they're going to meet far different challenges than you will. I mean, if, if I sat down with uh, commanders I had in the Connecticut State Police in the 80s and 90s and told them what I'm running into today, they, they, you know, in fact, I see one quite often and he just shakes his head, you know, what you look at. I mean, there's some really unique challenges out there today that, that we deal with. So everything evolves. I'm a pocket guy. You know, I, I've lived in uh, Stonington in southeastern Connecticut my whole life. And uh, I, I had won an award with the uh, Ocean Chamber of Commerce. It was like, funny, but the, my XO from True K, Jim Dolan, had said that uh, he won't ever leave this region. And uh, there's probably some truth to that. You know, and, and you have an advantage right now today where you can you can work from home. You know, there's a lot of different things you can do. So, it, uh, you know, I, I have deep roots here. I do. And I, I love this region. I do. Well, Chief Michael Spellman, uh, Chief of Police of the City of Groton Police, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Have a very happy retirement, and uh, we won't say farewell. We will say we'll see you around. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Chief Spellman retires on May 21st, 2021, and we thank him for his years of service. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, brought to you by UConn Health. Here for you then, here for you now. Hello, my name is Dr. Maggie Evans, and today I'm talking about the mental health issue of anxiety, particularly in the context of the current pandemic. Anxiety disorders are one of the most common mental health problems, impacting approximately one in five U.S. adults per year. We have seen that the pandemic has had a significant effect on the emotional well-being of the general population. It has exacerbated already present anxiety symptoms in some people and caused the onset of anxiety in individuals who were not previously struggling with this. People may be concerned about their own or others' health and experiencing additional stressors, such as financial strain, job loss, or social isolation. There are different types of anxiety disorders and different ways anxiety can present. Common symptoms include persistent worry, having trouble getting away from worry-related thoughts, feelings of tension and nervousness, changes in sleep and appetite, panic attacks, and avoidance behaviors. Specific to the onset of the pandemic, some people experienced an increase in what we call health-related anxiety. Others have noticed elevated anxiety symptoms presenting more recently as restrictions are lifting and we are able to do more. It is important to know that anxiety during and outside of the pandemic is highly treatable. Effective interventions exist and are available if you need help. If you or someone you know is suffering from the signs or symptoms of a mental illness, then contact your doctor and speak to them about professional treatment options and how they can help you. Got stumps? Then call Green Valley Tree LLC and let us remove them for you. Our stump grinder is quick and efficient, leaving your property stump-free in no time. Our stump grinding services are available for homeowners, contractors, and municipalities alike. Call us for a quote at 860-234-4041. Find out about our other services at our website, greenvalleytreeworks.com. We're family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... The Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is a nonprofit organization which, through advocacy, prevention, and education, is here to support individuals and families who are impacted by problem gambling. Our helpline, 1-888-789-7777, is available 24 hours a day, 
seven days a week. We also have live chat and tech support through our website, www.ccpg.org. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter and training ship Eagle set sail from its home port of New London recently to begin its first international summer training since COVID-19. Michael Turdo is the captain of Eagle and says they did sail in 2020, but COVID kept them in local waters. On board, we have a bulkhead, a ship's wall, with plaques commemorating every one of the summer training deployments since 1946. And it's a little bittersweet to see that 2020 plaque with just New London listed on it. So we are absolutely excited to get out and be able to represent the Coast Guard abroad, represent the United States. And for Coast Guard cadet Celia Fitzgerald, it's her third outing on Eagle, but her first to leave the shores of the U.S. This is obviously a very old ship, and it's it's very historic, and I think it's just such a cool experience. I think when I do this, I think about how many other kids get to do this, and there's not that many 21-year-olds out there that get to cross the Atlantic with the Coast Guard, so that's just something really special. The training program will see Eagle visit Portugal, Iceland and Bermuda, and for many of the 130 cadets on board will be the first time they have left the shores of the United States. The town of Killingley has announced that Frito-Lay, a division of PepsiCo and a leading snack manufacturer, is embarking on the $235 million expansion project at its Killingley manufacturing site in a plan that includes the creation of 120 new jobs in the town. Frito-Lay's Killingley site began operations in 1980 with just 200 employees and currently employs approximately 740 full-time associates at the site. The building expansion is set to begin in spring 2022 and the project is expected to be complete in the second quarter of 2024. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, with federal approval of an 84-turbine, 800-megawatt wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts, the path is now clear for a number of outsized wind projects planned off the coast of the northeastern United States. Vineyard Wind, located in the Atlantic Ocean south of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, will be the first utility-scale offshore wind project in the U.S., following a much smaller 30-megawatt Block Island wind project off Rhode Island and a 12-megawatt project for Dominion Energy off the coast of Virginia. The $2 billion Vineyard Wind project will provide Massachusetts with enough electricity to supply 400,000 homes. It is a 50-50 partnership between Avongrid, the parent company of Connecticut-based United Illuminating, and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. In the day this week, Jack Chaplin, a beloved figure in the New London food community through his restaurant Daddy Jack's and popular YouTube channels, has died at the age of 62. Daddy Jack's had posted on Facebook in late April asking for prayers, saying that Jack had a triple bypass heart surgery in September and started having complications. Last summer, Chaplin talked to the Dane newspaper about the struggles of the pandemic and his future plans, saying he was low on energy and looking for a path to retirement even before COVID-19 hit. But there were other projects he was interested in, such as his Chaplin's Classics and Cooking with the Blues YouTube channels and producing blues albums for his Jack Daddy label. Each of his channels has amassed more than 100,000 subscribers. Chaplin was raised in Vernon and graduated from Johnson & Wales in 1978, going on to work at restaurants across the country. He became a local star in Dallas, where he opened Daddy Jack's and served New England seafood. 
In the Norwich Bulletin this week, the father of an infant killed in Norwich by a family dog is a person of interest in a new London house fire that has been classified as arson. During a late morning press conference outside a charred multifamily home at 10 Rosemary Street in New London, police chief Peter Reichardt said 32-year-old Timothy Settles is a suspect in what was described as an intentionally set blaze. Settles is the father of Carter, a month-old baby boy that was killed recently by a pit bull at 36 McKinley Avenue in Norwich. Reichardt said Settles was reportedly the last person seen outside the new London home before its front porch caught fire around 4am. Reichardt said there is no arrest warrant for Settles and no probable cause yet for an arrest. In the Middletown Press this week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has reported that nearly 46% of Connecticut's 3.6 million residents are now fully vaccinated, which is among the highest in the country. This comes as vaccination appointments begin to open to children between the ages of 12 and 15, following the U.S. Food and Drug Administration expanding the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And in next week's Connecticut East This Week... On May 19th, the state of Connecticut reopens for business, with many COVID restrictions being eased. So what does that mean for businesses in the state? We talked to the Connecticut Business and Industry Association. And with Pfizer very much in the headlines as their COVID vaccine is cleared for use on adolescents aged 12 years and older, we hear from Pfizer and Groton on the road ahead for them and the company as a whole. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. <music>